Since April 2009, the Honorable Juanita Bing Newton has served as Dean of the New York State Judicial Institute, the capstone of a career as an attorney, a trial judge, and an administrative judge. She brought to the position her experience as a felony trial judge in New York County Supreme Court, administrative judge for the Criminal Court of New York City, Court of Claims Judge, and Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for Justice Initiatives. She also has extensive prior experience in judicial education as a student, faculty member, and advisory board member of the Institute for Faculty Excellence in Judicial Education at the University of Memphis. At the end of the year, Judge Bing Newton will retire, which makes this an opportune time to speak with her about the past, present, and future of judicial education. I'm John Carr, Senior Advisor for Strategic and Technical Communications with the Unified Court System. And it's my pleasure and honor to have this opportunity to speak with Judge Bing Newton. Judge, first, and as both a citizen and an employee of the court system, I'd like to thank you uh, for all that you've contributed to the administration of justice and the cause of equal, equal justice. Thank you, John, that's very sweet of you. Thank you very much, I greatly appreciate that. Now your, your career in public service is well known. It's a matter of public record. A lot of people know you're a judge. A lot of people know you're the Dean of the Judicial Institute. Some of us know that you're a graduate of uh, Northwestern University and the Catholic University of America School of Law. A lot of us are familiar with your um, passionate efforts to promote racial, ethnic, and gender equality in the courts. And that you were, you were an original member of what is now the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. But I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit better and understand what drives you. So if you, if you would, tell me your story. Where are you from? What did your parents do? How and why did you develop an interest in the law? You know, I'm one of those unique people. I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in Manhattan, stayed there for three days and went to my home in the Bronx where I was uh, raised in a picture perfect family. We were so perfect, we didn't even know we were poor. We had an amazing, my brothers and I had amazing parents who loved us almost as much as they loved each other. And so we were a happy family. Literally, when I think back on the dynamics of the world, I said we would probably have been categorized as poor, but the only thing we were poor in is money. We were not poor in anything else. Um, my parents were um, members of that generation of the great migration from the South, having come up from the South. My dad only finished the fourth grade. My mom had some high school, but as they taught us, they were tremendously hardworking people. And we had family, we had church, we had education and demands of family, church, and education. When I say family, you should note, I have 60, my brothers and I have 60 first cousins. So, and we, those were our friends. That's where we lived in family. And then our neighborhood became family. Our neighborhood being um, New York City housing uh, project. And we never called it NYCHA or housing projects. We always called it the forest neighborhood houses. And that's what it was for us, a neighborhood. Um, we went to church at St. Anthony's where my mom put me in uh, St. Anthony Elementary School when I started in third grade uh, at the tremendous tuition of $3 a month. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I think I learned my 
social justice passion from my parents. Um, I, and I have to say from the good Mary No Missionary Sisters at St. Anthony of Padua Elementary School, ours was a mission. And so they put us in the same category as missions in China and Africa, um, our South Bronx mission and uh, was a mission and school was a mission. And we learned from the Good Sisters the importance of compassion, sharing, caring, and being devoted, not only in a religious sense, but also in a uh, community sense. Um, so I learned from family and I learned from church, I learned from school. Um, and there was, I guess you asked, what was the one incident that made me really focus on social justice? My brother was arrested three weeks before he was scheduled to go away to college. And he was arrested for being a passenger in a stolen vehicle. And of course, he did not know he was um, in a stolen vehicle. Uh, and when they went to court, the attitude was, well, he'll just have to come back in three months. And my mother said, well, he can't come back in three months. We're sending him off to Denver. He can't come back in three months. We are scraping together the money to get him to Denver. And, um, and we were all distraught because it meant he couldn't go to school. But my mother was an intrepid person and she was a school crossing guard. So she went to her union and she and uh, hired the union lawyer right on that spot. And he came to court and did that magic that lawyers can do and convinced the judge to um, uh, have what they was then something that we don't have anymore, a three judge panel to decide the sufficiency of cases. It was a administrative rule to try to resolve some cases quicker. And they paneled this court for the next day and the case against my brother was dismissed. And he was able to go off on college and lead a tremendous life. Um, that told me the value of sound court operations, de uh, delays do matter in people's lives. That caught me the taught me the message that lawyers are important and, and taught me to believe that things can be better no matter where you come from. But no. that's not why I didn't want to be a lawyer. I did not want to be a lawyer. You did not want to be a lawyer? No, I did not want to be a lawyer. That so, so what's next, med school? No, I, you know what? I started Northwestern as a, as a science major and, and, and changed. I was there during the, the radical 60s and the 70s. I look at my transcript and wonder what, how any of us graduated. But you know, I think uh, sometimes when you can decide what you want to be, sometimes you have to let the world come to you. And I did not pick the law, the law picked me. So uh, I was one afternoon in my senior year, I was walking North Campus to go to my student teaching class. And on my travels, I ran into a gentleman who was lost. And he asked me for directions to a building. And I said, this is where you go, but I'm going that way and I will take you. And we walked along together and we had a conversation that I don't recall, but at the end of the conversation, when we parted ways, he gave me his card and he said he was the Dean of Admissions at Catholic University School of Law. And that if I was interested in going to law school, 
I should call him and if I get the requisite grades on the uh, standardized test, he would admit me to the law school and they would give me a very generous stipend to cover all costs. So that was my call on the road to Damascus moment when the law found me. And so I quickly switched, well, not so quickly. I had to, we had to go back to the dormitory and speak to my roommates to say, do you think this is real? But uh, in short order, um, I found my way at Catholic University School of Law in 1972. What a great, what a great story. And, you know, turning back to your brother, if he had not had a lawyer then and there, his whole story changes, doesn't it? His whole life changes. His whole story changes. Again, we were not poor in anything but money, but my family got together that airfare to send him to school in Colorado, there would not have been an opportunity for him to go back and forth to take care of a criminal case. So in my years as an administrative judge, I tried to always tell the judges every adjournment is important. Beyond our moving a piece of paper from here to there, it is a major event in the lives of the people, the litigants, the defendants, the plaintiffs, the victims. And so um, that is what an attitude I brought to my tenure in the court system because I knew early on that it mattered how just we can be and how swift we can be in, in giving that justice. Thank you for sharing uh, your story and, and your roots with us. Now let's turn to the roots of the uh, Judicial Institute, um, which is currently based on the campus of Pace University Law School in White Plains. How, when, and why was it established? So I wasn't there at the beginning. The first dean was uh, Judge Robert Keating, um, who had always also served as an administrative judge in New York State Courts and retired and assumed this uh, position some years later. And so I'm told that this was the, the thinking of that tremendous chief judge, Judith Kay, and her uh, uh, companion, uh, chief court administrator, Jonathan Lippman. And it was thought that we, the court system, which always had education and training programs, should have a home to be able to have better curriculum, to have a wonderful facility uh, that was state of the art to have the best education and training. And so there was this collaboration with Pace Law School that led to the creation of the Judicial Institute. Um, it was to be, it's statutory. It was uh, supported by the New York State uh, legislators and the governor uh, that, that there shall be a Judicial Institute. And the goal of the Institute is to provide education, judicial education, for the judges and the court attorneys, attorneys of the unified court system. And that's been, we opened the Judicial Institute, the building uh, in uh, 2003. Is and New York un unique in that respect, having a, a Judicial Institute? I, you know, I did some travel nationally in access to justice and we always area and we always talked about judicial education. Most states have some judicial ed education, not all. Some depend on the National Judicial College for all of their uh, educational programs. 
But um, I think that we were unique in having a facility, a place for judicial education. I only heard of one other state that had anything similar. So you've got this facility, you've got these courses. Uh, then what? How do you fill the How do you fill the classroom? Are the, are the judges re required to attend occasionally? Um, no judge is required to attend. What, judges were not required to attend until I came as the dean. And I convinced the gen, then chief administrative judge, uh, Ann Fowle, that we should move the new judges program from December, where it was optional, to January, where it became, in essence, the first assignment that a judge would have. And that was more than just words. The sentiment is very strong. It said the first thing you have to do when you become a judge is to go to new judges school so that you can make that transition to being a judge. People say, oh, you're a lawyer, you could be a good judge. Or if you watched enough uh, judge shows on television, you mm -hmm. can be a judge. But being a judge, while our state court judges are attorneys, being a judge is not like anything else. It is not like being an attorney. The skill set uh, certainly is moved forward if you are an attorney, but it's an attorney plus. The attorney only gives you that um, substantive law perspective. Being a judge is a uniquely different uh, role. And, and we have found in the last 10 years that the judges actually become better at judging when they go to mandatory new judges school. And so that's the one mandatory course. All the other programs we have for the judges and the court attorneys are um, uh, not mandatory, but important in that both judges and court attorneys have mandatory continuing legal education requirements. And we provide accredited CLE programs for the attorneys and accredited um, continuing judicial education program for the judges. So um, we are always, we always have an audience. We, we, we never have courses or classes and nobody shows up. We're, we're fully subscribed by both the judges and the court attorneys. And that's because we give great programs. So um, what, what sort of uh, courses do you have and, and uh, who teaches them? Who, 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 who makes up the faculty? Well, first thing about the faculty, I have to give a shout out and thank you to the faculty. We don't pay anybody. <laughs> so maybe 1% of the people who have uh, provided uh, education for us are, are, are paid. We pay them in our goodwill. We buy them lunch if they happen to be at the building, but we rely on the kindness um, of judges, attorneys, um, who volunteer their time. Um, the one payment we give them, a complete uh, disclosure, we give them CLE credit if they teach for us. But uh, apart from that, uh, we just rely on the generosity of absolutely stellar uh, teachers. Uh, and we also work in a small measure with uh, teachers from the National Judicial College. But there we have them teach for us in teaching our colleagues to become teachers. So we have a very rich teacher education program because as, as you may have mentioned, I, I have a background in adult education learning. Mm -hmm. And I found that when we infuse our classes 
with the knowledge about how best to teach adult adult learners. We, we have much better and sound programming that really does what I think is an essence for us as teachers, that we not only inform our learners, but we try to transform them in their thinking and their understanding of the subject matter that's being offered. Now, I know the JI has a reputation for being cutting edge and a reputation for um, seeing around the corner to some extent. Um, in this age, what are the cutting edge issues, particularly in light of a international pandemic? In the, the pandemic was just an opportunity for us to um, build on things that we've always done. Science, you know, all those people who say they became lawyers because they didn't want to continue pre-med, well, the science has caught up with all of us. Science is critically important in the work of judges. And I'm not just saying um, if you are a, mel, a, a judge in a medical malpractice part. I can't think of nearly any part or assignment that doesn't touch on science. Um, we, your family court judge, we learned about the adolescent brain. Uh, when we had the whole raise the age issue in the criminal that touched all branches of courts, we, we did a lot of study about trauma. Um, when um, I had a trial one time where I interjected the Pythagorean theory in the testimony of the police officer on a buy and bust and the, and the juror on the, one of the jurors was a school teacher and she said, I'm so happy I'm going to go back and tell my students in my geometry class that you need to know geometry to decide a case in a buy and bust in a criminal matter. Science is all over. Um, and, and so the work we do in developing science classes has been integral in bringing our judges to a place that, no, they're not scientists, but they have the capacity to better understand and to ask questions of um, the litigants and the, and the attorneys that will inform um, the litigation. Uh, and so now we are at the pandemic. And so our judges across the uh, trajectory are gonna have to know how to handle and understand public health law. We did a three-day forum with the University of Pittsburgh some years ago on public health law. Um, they're going to have to know maybe a criminal defense. I don't know. The possibilities of science of COVID, vaccinations, business interruption law because of the science is going to is, is at the door of our judges. And that happens all the time. The law does not uh, live in a vacuum. It's not static. The law lives. And as judges and attorneys, we have to move with it. Um, we had a seminar uh, once on actual innocence. And while I know we're now looking at bias issues from the recent report from Secretary Jay Johnson, but we've been looking at bias issues, not necessarily from the psychological point of implicit bias, but actual bias. We did a program on actual innocence and it was fascinating to know the various sciences that go in to deciding issues that relate to criminal justice in action, in the courtroom, with the judge, with the juries. How do you explain 
uh, self-defense to the jury. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that we teach the judges, not only substantive issues, what's the science, the who, what, when, where, and why, but also the skill set. How do you answer a juror's question and make it in plain English? That's another course that we teach judges, how to write and think in plain English, because the law that goes to the jury that they don't understand is quite frankly useless and doesn't assist the jury. It's almost an insult if you don't talk to the jury in plain English, because your job as a judge is to assist them to understanding and comprehending. So we have classes on how to decide um, right issues uh, in plain and English, but without watering it down so you're changing the meaning. There are a lot of dicey things that judges have to try to learn to do in their myriad role of teacher. You know, I started by saying I was going to teaching class, so I started out going to be a teacher when I ran into um, the dean from the law school. And so I think that as judges, we all have a role to be a teacher as well as a person who makes decisions. So we try to teach a lot of skills, sometimes subtly, but a lot of skills to the judges when they come to the Judicial Institute. We Legal updates by themselves are wonderful, but that's just the beginning of the training for the judges. Now, how were you able to do this or were you able to do this during the pandemic? I, I imagine or I think that PACE was shut down or virtually shut down for a good chunk of this year. So were you, were you able to provide that uh, education virtually in any capacity? Well, you know, one of my successes in my career has been the blessing of extraordinary people working with us. And we have not been at the Judicial Institute, the building, since March 17th. But we have been the Judicial Institute, the think tank, the place of learning and training since that time. And we've done it all virtually. And in, since, the, since March 17th, we have produced nearly well over 60 classes online, virtually. And they have been across the span of variety. We have touched on every single discipline, criminal, family, civil, surrogates, every discipline. And we have done so both in legal updates, but also special training. So for example, on the issue of bias training, we had a plenary session on the chokehold, plenary sessions on, um, uh, uh, on, on the skill set, on how to handle, how to, how to learn how to do uh, 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 ADR in the virtual world. And so we have been as busy as if we were at the Institute and there were no pandemic. The only thing that's changed for us is that we've become, or my staff has become very high tech. Uh, and we, we, we haven't been involved in what I call the event planning aspect of the uh, business of education. So we haven't brought thousands of people together to do training and working with hotels and, and that kind of stuff. But we have, I am so proud of my staff to say this, we have met the needs. And of course, being virtual is only part of it. We then have to have a delivery system and so if you go to our website, there are literally 
hundreds and hundreds of accredited classes that will teach judges almost anything they want to know or they need in their their pockets to to be able to be effective as judges and and just even maintaining that website blows my mind it's incredible Uh, so we've been working very hard Um, my staff has been tremendous and our faculty have joined in with us so uh, interestingly we have been able to task people who are not local because it didn't cost us anything to bring them in from South Carolina or bring them in from California. All we had to do is go into the virtual world and say, hi, you know, welcome to the Judicial Institute from wherever you are. And and that's been wonderful. Again, our faculty is very supportive. And so we find that if we ask people, they will they will answer. We sort of quote co-call prominent people. We said, we read about your book. Will you teach for us? And 99% of the time, the answer is yes. We wow. will for you. People are very, educators are very interested in educating. And, you know, this is without honorarium, you know, without a free trip to White Plains, uh, just over the virtual world. That's wonderful that you're able to utilize those uh, resources. Now, a moment ago, you alluded to a recent report by uh, Secretary Jay Johnson, which found that the court system still has a considerable amount of work to do in eliminating uh, bias in the court system. Does the JI have a role to play in furthering that goal of eliminating bias in the court system? Absolutely. You know, first and foremost, you know, the chief judge has said um, in first order, we accept the report and we're going to work on implementing all the recommendations. And that's a tremendous, uh, tremendously important commitment. And so kudos to Judge uh, Judge DeFiori. The second thing, Judge Marks has set up a a group of people to implement them. And we are working closely with that group to give them our opinion of what we think needs to be taught in terms of mandatory, I call it anti-bias training for everyone in the court system. And what a tremendous responsibility that is because we you know, we have 15,000 employees, 5,000 judges, et cetera, et cetera. So it's gonna be a huge task. But I think the role of the judicial institute, and we are working on helping to develop the curriculum uh, in that, and if asked, we'll help in developing the rollout. But I think the other piece that the judicial institute will be involved in is the educational part of the training. And I differentiate, and I know we're parsing words, the difference between education and training. You know, we can put together a piece to educate, to train them how to do X, but for educational purposes, we want to, again, transform their thinking. We want to transform people through sound judicial education, how to think about the work they're doing in the courtroom. We want to think about um, decisions that they're writing. Again, remember I said that the law evolves. And so we want judge, justices to think about whether or not um, in writing the decision, some biases are coming out. You know, sometimes judges are uninformed 
And so they'll make decisions based on bad information or misinformation. And so we want to make that um, aware to judges. So for example, in our day of actual innocence, we brought in thinkers who could say, you know, take a look at this piece of information and then you decide how you're gonna use it in a neutral way, not in a biased way. And, and we know this is probably going to be an effort to use a sociology a little bit more, but when you're setting bail, I used to always ask, in setting bail, they would always say, um, and the defendant lives in a bad community. And I would say, well, does that something against the defendant? Does that make him a victim or a perpetrator if he lives in a bad neighborhood? So we want judges to think about how their biases may affect their decision-making. We want them to know that the chokehold is something that is a, a physical thing, but it has some implications on how it's used. And so, and that the Supreme Court has written about these things. So we want them to be intellectual about some hot button issues and always lean on the law. But, uh, and so that's our focus is to lean on the law. We, 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 we do a mix of law and sociology and law and, 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 and science, but we always want them to get back to leaning on the law. And I think that's one of the ways which the Judicial Institute can focus and reinforce and inform the training that will go on about bias. I don't believe your successor has been uh, named yet, but um... What is your one major piece of advice to, to whoever follows in your footsteps? You know, I would say to the next dean that he or she should focus on the education piece of being the dean. You know, even if you talk to deans in, in law school and other capacities, they can really get bogged down in administrative issues. And my view is administration will take care of itself. They know where to find you if you're not following the administrative rule. But the law will only grow. The education will only grow if you continue to be curious. You continue to go out and think bigger thoughts. And so I would say to the next team, focus on the education. Focus on the new. Focus, be an experimenter. Uh, Again, be curious. I think that if you describe me and, and the things I've done over these 35 years is that I think that the, the sine qua non of that is I was just a very curious person about everything. And so I would say that the next dean has to be curious about education and the myriad ways it can inform and change and in fact transform people. That would be my suggestion. And to have fun, enjoy, it's a wonderful job. That sounds like great advice. Be curious and have fun. Now, um, let's turn back to you. So retirement, what are your plans? What are you going to do? Well, I've been working since I was 15 years old. So the first thing I'm going to do is stop working. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe take a nap. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, there are things that I need to take care of in your personal life. I, I've been avoiding retirement because I say to people, what am I going to do? And a good friend of mine said, once you get off that treadmill of running and getting up at six o'clock and exhale and have a cup of coffee that's not on the run and read the paper with just, you know, more than just the headlines, 
She said, you'll find the day will be filled. And so there are a couple of things I want to do that are personal. Um, I, you know, I'm going to try to go into my 70s and, and lose that 20 pounds I've been trying to lose since I was 50. <laughs> and so I'm going to focus a little bit on health. I'm going to focus on some changes and finding a place to live. I'm going to downsize. But in terms of personal pursuit, the one thing I would like to do is to find a way to continue to work in uh, legal education for minorities and underserved communities. One of the programs that JI uh, had that I was most happy to be involved in was the Legal Education Opportunities Program, the so-called LEO program. And uh, the one area that I can think of, you know, I continue to want to work on women's issues and diversity issues, but concretely, I'd like to see if there's a way we can resurrect the LEO program, which was not held this year because of the pandemic and has had periodic um, financial issues. But I would love to continue that work of finding and supporting young women, young minority men and women, people who never thought about uh, the legal correct curriculum was for them. I'd like to be um, for them what the Catholic University Law School Dean Barricado was to me. I'd like for them to have that Paul on the road to D uh, Damascus moment when someone says, you never thought about it, but you can be a lawyer and you can change lives. And so that's my one thing I'd like to pursue. Um, it sounds like you're going to be every bit as busy in retirement than you've been in your career. Yeah, well, we're here. I'd love to serve and um, I love the opportunity to serve. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to make just a little baby closing statement. Is that okay? Absolutely. Please do. First of all, I want to thank the four, count them, four chief judges who have given me an opportunity to work and to serve with the Unified Court System. Saul Walker, Judith Kay, Jonathan Lipman, and Janet Fiore. Very few people can say that they have been supported, encouraged by four chief judges. They asked me to do things that I didn't think I knew how to do. And I am forever grateful to them. Secondly, I wanna thank the tremendous men and women who I've had an opportunity to work with. From my first secretary, Olivia Dennis, who was by me for every step of the way until she retired, until this tremendous Judicial Institute staff who are remarkable to a person and led by the Chief of Staff, Damaris Torrent, and all the men and women across the continuum. I have been able to collaborate with these men and women who are committed. And I know sometimes they would roll their eyes and say, Judge Newton has us going off in another um, journey that we can't quite see, and, and yet uh, we have been very successful. So I want to just thank all of them. And of course, that includes the judges with whom I've had an opportunity to serve. And so I, I thank everybody for the opportunity to serve. Um, I think we've done some good work and um, it's been fun. Once again, uh, a new, I'm not having a new chapter. I say I'm having a new volume with many chapters. And so hopefully I'll see you, John, and other people during the course of filling up those chapters. I certainly hope, I hope so. And once again, Judge, thank, thank you for all that you've done. And thank you for uh, consenting to this interview today.
Thank you, John. You do great work. Thank you so much. I appreciate, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.